And I hope all of you had a good Christmas. And as we look forward to 2014, we're excited about what God's going to be doing at this church. And over the next few weeks, when our pastor gets back next week and the next few weeks after that, we'll be taking a look at not only where we currently are as a church, but where we'll be going. So we hope you'll be a part of that. Pastor David will be back next week, so we look forward to him coming back. And this morning, we are concluding our sermon series. We've been in Luke the past month. And this morning, we're going to be in Luke chapter 2, which I believe is where we spent a lot of our time this month. We're going to be starting in verse 36 this morning, looking at hope for every longing heart. Now, keep in mind a little bit of background about Luke is that he, along with his gospel, has also written Acts. So Luke and Acts make up about 25% of the entire New Testament. So Luke is a very accomplished writer. He's often been labeled as a historian because he's more likely to include details in his gospel than some of the other gospel writers have done. So he's a very, very good writer. He mentions a lot of the Old Testament in his gospel as well, so there's a lot of prophecy in the Old Testament. And this morning we're actually going to be looking at one of the prophets themselves in this passage in Luke. We're going to be looking at Anna this morning. She is not well known. In fact, this is the only time that we hear of Anna is in this chapter in Luke. And so we're going to look at her prophecy regarding the coming Messiah Keep in mind, this takes place in the middle of chapter 2. Now, chapter 2 is a really, really long chapter in Luke. It's about 70 or 80 verses. And at this point, we've already seen the angels preparing for the coming of Jesus. We've seen Simeon's prophecy. And now we're going to be looking at Anna's message. So if you have your Bible with me, let's go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 2. And we'll be starting in verse 36. And it'll be on the screen if you'd like to follow along. And there was a prophetess, Anna the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. In this passage already, we've seen Luke giving very specific details. He says that she is the daughter of Phanuel and from the tribe of Asher. Asher is one of the 12 tribes of Israel. It's a relatively unknown tribe. We don't know much about it. Phanuel is mentioned practically nowhere else in the Bible, but yet Luke still provides these key details because he wants us to understand that Anna has credentials as a devout Jewish woman. He goes on to tell us that she was married for seven years before becoming a widow and lived total 84 years. So Anna has lived the majority of her life without her husband, but has been prophesying the return of the Messiah. Now Anna is known for her perseverance, much like other Old Testament prophets that we find throughout the Old Testament. Prophets were known for their perseverance because they had to endure the course and continue preaching the message about Christ. If you look back into the Old Testament, you'll find Isaiah, 
whose ministry spanned over 40 years, he's probably the most well-known Old Testament prophet. We probably quote Isaiah the most, especially around Christmas time, because of his proclamation about the coming of the Messiah. And he served under four different kings during his reign as a prophet, rebuking them, calling out their sin. He's also known as the evangelical prophet because he's the one that we talk most about the coming Messiah. It's Isaiah. We also have the prophet Amos, who was a shepherd by trade, and he was responsible for rebuking the northern kingdoms of Israel for their extravagant lifestyle. The northern tribes came into some money. They became wealthy, and instead of handling that money the proper way, they were neglecting the poor. They were not showing kindness and justice to those that needed the money. And so Amos comes, and he rebukes these people for basically ignoring the poor. And then we also have Jeremiah, known as the weeping prophet. Jeremiah's message was extremely unpopular to those that he was preaching to. He came to say that Jerusalem would fall at the hands of the Babylonians. Now you can imagine when Jeremiah delivers this message how it would have been received with unpopularity. And so Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet because his message is one of judgment and destruction. In fact, unfortunately for the Israelites, Jerusalem falls to the Babylonians under the well-known king Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C. So we know that Jeremiah's message was one that was not popular. You see, the reason I mention all of these prophets, and they're certainly not the only ones, is that they bring a message that requires them to have perseverance. It was not a popular message. They had to endure difficult times and difficult trials for the message that they were bringing. It's the same way with Anna in this passage. We see that Anna must persevere. For 84 years, the text tells us, she had been living and proclaiming the coming of the Messiah and waiting on it. Perhaps when other people were making fun of her, perhaps when other people were saying it was never going to happen, she stayed the course and she persevered. And that's the quality we find in Anna, is perseverance. Now, how do we take that and make it make sense to us? Well, you see, all of us, at some point in our lives, are going to endure trials and tribulation. We know this. And even though perseverance is a quality that we know is an admirable quality, it's more difficult to actually do than we think it is. Because we don't want trials. We don't want tribulation. We want them to to go away fast. And we have trouble persevering through the difficult times. We just mentioned in our time of prayer those families that have lost loved ones over the holidays. And they're in the process of persevering, getting through these difficult times. And see, what Anna teaches us is that however your trials go, you must persevere. And her message was a message of hope for the coming Messiah. And you know what? In our lives, we're proclaiming that same message. And I'm here to tell you that you will have to persevere in spite of that message. You will have to persevere. The, the seeds that you plant in your life might not come to fruition in your lifetime. Paul tells us that some plant and some water, and maybe the seeds you're planting, you're hoping to see the results of them, but odds are it might not happen in this lifetime. And what we find in Anna in this passage is that even though the results might not be there, you keep persevering, you keep staying the course, and you keep fighting for the gospel that Jesus has told us about this morning. The text also tells us that she was in the temple 
worshiping day and night with fasting and prayer. It's interesting here that Luke talks about Anna praying day and night. Now, we have this concept that's actually introduced originally by Paul. And this would be the concept of praying without ceasing. It's interesting that Luke, who is a companion of Paul, we know he traveled with Paul on some of his missionary journeys. And praying without ceasing is something that Paul introduces in the very first letter that he ever penned in the New Testament. And that was 1 Thessalonians. He wrote in that book, pray without ceasing. Now what exactly does praying without ceasing mean? When we think of this concept, we, we have trouble being able to grasp it because it seems impossible for us to be praying 24 hours a day, right? It's important to understand that praying without ceasing is not endless prayer. It's just recurring prayer. It's being in an attitude of prayer, a mindset of prayer throughout your day. You might be facing a, a trial in your life, maybe a temptation, and at that very moment you stop and you ask God to deliver you from that temptation. Perhaps you see somebody in need, maybe you're driving in your car, you see somebody on the side of the road, you don't have any money for them or anything to help them with tangibly, but you can stop and ask the Lord to provide for them. Pray for his hope and for his mercy and grace in their life. Perhaps you have the birth of a child or a grandchild, or perhaps you're in your car driving and all signs point to you getting in this terrible wreck, but somehow you avoid it, right? And you stop and you thank God and you praise him for his provision over your life. You see, praying without ceasing is not praying 24 hours a day, but it's allowing all of the activities in your daily life to be torn towards God, to commune with him in all aspects of your life. That's what praying without ceasing is. That's what we find Anna doing here in the temple. We find Luke writing about this because Paul taught him about it when he was with him on his missionary journeys. It also says that she was fasting in the temple. Now, fasting is a spiritual discipline that is difficult for many of us, especially living in a city like this, where we love to feast and eat. But it's important that we understand fasting in its truest sense, and we need to get rid of these misunderstandings that some people have about fasting. First, you need to understand that fasting is to be done privately before God and with a humble heart. It's not a spiritual discipline that we need to broadcast to other people that we're doing. In fact, Jesus tells us in Matthew 6 that when you fast, you should do it privately and humbly. Nobody needs to know. We also need to understand that fasting is not meant as a form of diet, okay? Now, there are many dietary plans out there. Fasting is really not the healthy way to do it. All right, because the purpose of fasting is not to lose weight, but to increase our focus on the Lord. It's also done in the Old Testament as a sign of mourning, typically. But in the New Testament, what we find is that fasting is usually done in a cheerful spirit, with a heart of expectation. And that's how we find Anna using it here. Fasting should be done as a way to increase your desire on God and to reject your physical desire so every time you're hungry, you take that moment to pray to God and ask him to give you guidance and direction. That's what fasting is. It's not a way to lose weight. And so we find Anna fasting and praying in the temple. She is a spiritual woman who practices spiritual disciplines. My friends and I in college decided to experiment with the spiritual discipline of fasting and so we decided we would fast for 24 hours, and then we would meet together and talk about the experience. 
Well, the 24 hours came and went, and of course we didn't eat any, but we all began to realize that the fasting really wasn't that meaningful for any of us. And we basically came to the conclusion that the reason that it wasn't meaningful is because there was really no purpose behind our fast. It was strictly an attempt to see if we could go 24 hours without eating. Every time we felt hunger, we didn't take that opportunity to see God's face and ask his direction. And that's the same with any spiritual discipline. If there's no purpose behind your spiritual discipline, there's no need doing it. If you read your Bible and you have no purpose in reading it, if you're not expecting God to bring you answers, it's meaningless. If you pray to the Lord without a spirit of prayer, it's meaningless. Spiritual disciplines are there only if you have a purpose behind them and do them appropriately. And what Anna shows us in this passage is she is anxiously waiting for a word from the Lord regarding the coming Messiah. And she is fasting and praying because she desperately wants to hear from the Lord. And that's what spiritual disciplines are all about. There's a very popular book, probably the most popular book ever written on spiritual disciplines. It was written by a man named Richard Foster. It's called The Celebration of Discipline. If you've never read it, I would encourage you to do that. And he takes a number of spiritual disciplines, not just fasting and prayer, but a number of other disciplines, and he writes about them. And he writes about ways you can do it and methods for doing it. Very, very well-known book. But at the end of the day, spiritual disciplines are meaningless if there's not a purpose behind them. And that purpose is to grow closer in our walks with the Lord. And that's what we find Anna doing in this passage as she's in the temple fasting and praying. As we keep reading on in the text, what we find in Anna's life is that she had a passion for the Lord. It's interesting here that Luke tells us that she was telling everyone she knew about the gospel, about the message. Can you imagine someone like Anna waiting your whole life for the coming of the Messiah, anticipating it, waiting for it, with joy in your heart, asking God to deliver to you the Messiah? Now, many of us live life expecting great things to happen. Maybe we're waiting for something miraculous to happen in our lives. Maybe we just think about things throughout history that have happened that in our minds we were hoping one day would happen and they finally come. How about being able to check email on your phone from anywhere in the world? Unbelievable. Being able to see the saints finally win a Super Bowl. Unbelievable. Things that we've waited our entire life to happen. All of those things pale in comparison to what we find Anna waiting for in this passage as she is waiting on the coming Messiah. The text tells us that she told everyone she possibly could about it. And as I read those verses, I'm struck by the fact that Anna is not selective at all in who she shares her message with. The text does not tell us that she was only telling a certain few people, only her friends, only her family. But the text seems to indicate, Luke seems to write to us, that she was telling everyone she knew about the message of the Lord. She had a passion for sharing the message of the coming Messiah. You see, unlike Anna, I'm afraid that we're far too selective today in who we share the gospel with. I believe for whatever reason, whether it be embarrassment, fear, concerned about being politically incorrect, whatever it might be, we are too selective in who we share the gospel of Jesus Christ with. 
And what we find Anna in this passage doing is telling everyone she knew about that. And I hope, as we read and we see in her, that we will become more and more bold in our attempts to share the gospel with those around us. You see, you'll never share your faith with people. You'll never proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ unless you make it a priority in your life. If it's not a priority, it won't happen because it's not something that comes natural to most of us. Most of us are not inclined to share our faith with others. It's something that we have to work at. It's just as much as a spiritual discipline as fasting and prayer is. And so this morning, what we find in Anna is somebody who had a passion for the Lord, sharing the gospel message, not being concerned about what anybody thought, anticipating the coming of the Lord, and she shared it wholeheartedly. And what we find as we shift away from Anna, as we look into these last two verses of this passage, what we're finding is Luke completely changes the setting of this chapter. He's been talking about Anna for the whole passage, and these last two verses that we're looking at today, he shifts his focus back to Jesus and his parents. And see, this is a style that Luke used. He formed these prophecies in between Jesus and his parents coming and leaving the temple. And what we find in verses 39 and 40 is that Jesus and his family, they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, and they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now it's interesting, other than these few passages in Luke, there is practically nothing about Jesus' childhood recorded for us in the New Testament. Of course, his birth is mentioned, a few events in his childhood, this being one of the ones we just read, and then it brushes straight ahead all the way to when Jesus begins his public ministry. And skeptics of Christianity have often looked at this and said, why is there this huge gap in the amount of information we have regarding Jesus? Why is there nothing about his childhood? And skeptics will use this and say, we don't have enough information to really believe in Jesus because there's this huge gap in the amount of info we have of him. There's this span from by the time he was about 12 to 30 where we don't know what's going on. But it's important to understand this morning that every gospel writer is not writing a biography about Jesus. The gospels are not biographies. If they were biographies, then they would include his birth, most of his childhood, his ministry, and then his death. But the gospel writers are not concerned about what Jesus might have eaten for breakfast when he was 14 years old. Those kind of things aren't important. And I think that serves as a strength to the gospels because they understood the most important message about Christ. And that was not what he did in his teenage years, but that he was born, he taught, he performed miracles, he died for us, and he was resurrected. So the gospel writers understood completely what they were writing about because they were focusing on the crux of the message, and that is what he did for the entire world. Would it be nice to have that information about Jesus? Absolutely. If somebody were to discover some documents regarding Jesus' childhood, they'd be a very famous person. But the reality is the Gospels don't include it because it's not the most important thing about Jesus. 
the most important thing about Jesus is what he did for you and me on the cross. But Luke does give us some information in this passage about Jesus' childhood. What does he say? He say he grew up, he became wiser, he had favor with God and man. If you move down into Luke 2.52, what you'll find is the verse says he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. This is a verse that we know very well. It's the last verse about Jesus in chapter 2, that he grew and became strong. Not only does he have favor with God, the text tells us, but he had favor with man. Even though a lot of religious leaders, a lot of people in Jesus' day did not like him, most did respect him. And this text indicates that for us in Luke chapter 2. You see, Jesus was growing, becoming wise, becoming strong, getting ready to launch his public ministry to the entire world. And we find that here in chapter 2. And the most exciting aspect of this recording here in chapter 2 is that once you get through about the middle of chapter 4, the time of preparation, the time of prophecy is coming to an end. And Jesus is being launched into his public ministry to the entire world. So Luke only spends about chapters 1 through 4 mentioning Jesus growing up, prophecies about him, his birth. By the time you get to the middle of chapter 4, he's out. And he's sharing the gospel with those he comes into contact with. Him and his disciples are going everywhere. The Gospel of Luke is chronicling the spread of Jesus and his disciples. And then in his second work, Acts, he's chronicling the spread of Christianity across the world. See, that's what Luke is concerned about. He's concerned about the proclamation of Jesus Christ. He's concerned about making Christ known. Are we concerned about making Christ known? Luke seems to make that very clear that the purpose of his gospel is to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus is And so what we find this morning is that Luke is telling us that the most important thing that any of us can do is share the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of his gospel. That's the purpose of Jesus' life. That was his mission on this earth, was to share the gospel. Those are the extraordinary qualities of Jesus that we should be emulating this morning, is that he came to save. You see, at some point or another, most of us in this room heard the good news of Jesus Christ from somebody, whether it be from the preacher standing up on stage maybe a Sunday school teacher, maybe somebody you work with, maybe a relative, but we all heard it. And I think we need to get back to focusing on sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with those that we know. And Anna makes it very clear in this passage that that was her mission in life, was to proclaim the good news of the coming Messiah. The reality is that Anna was not sure when Jesus was going to come. She didn't know. All of us in this room know that he's come. We have the truth sitting right in front of us. We are aware that he came, that he died for us, and that he rose again. So unlike Anna, who was unsure when it would happen, we know that it's happened. So what are we doing with that truth? Are we sharing it with those that we come into contact with? Will you bow your head with me this morning?
Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this truth from Anna and the qualities that she shows us in this passage. God, we thank you for Jesus who came so that we could have life sharing the good news with those he came into contact with. Lord, I ask and pray this morning that we would persevere as we share our faith, that we would practice spiritual disciplines, and that we would have a passion for sharing our faith with others. Lord, only you can put that burden on our hearts. So we ask that your Holy Spirit would come now and do that for us. Thank you for this church and all that we do in the community. God, I pray that we would never forget the reason that we do it, which is so that your name can be proclaimed. Thank you for your word and how it teaches us, how it shapes us. We give you all the glory for all that you do. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.